That kind of crap is not going to work in the United States of America. Oh, it might, Bernie. It just might. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania, lovely Lancaster, 93 FM WLRI. And of course, out in Hawaii, 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Also, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR in Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide. From the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger. Journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. You can tweet us throughout the hour and beyond at the Bradblog if you like. As we discussed on this program yesterday uh, in covering that incredible story, and I urge you to go, if you didn't hear yesterday's show, to go to bradblog.com and listen to my interview with Brendan Fisher of the uh, Center for Media and Democracy up there in Wisconsin. Uh, It's just, it's one of those stories that uh, has been getting so lost uh, beneath all of the national news uh, falling below the radar uh, up in Wisconsin. This is our electoral system. Our, Our system of democracy itself remains under attack in this country. Even as, of course, much of the national media continues to remain transfixed on Donald Trump's weapons-grade trolling on Muslims and just about everything else. And, and uh, while the, the, the key to that story, really, the key to the Donald Trump story remains itself underreported, the fact that it's not just Donald Trump, that he's merely, he's merely representing what has now become of the Republican Party itself. Thanks to unchecked, round-the-clock racialism, racism, and race-baiting by the GOP and its media outlets like Fox News and and right-wing talk radio, which now blankets our public airwaves with poison and lies like this nonstop for well over a decade at this point. Uh, but all of that, while it, it's got to be covered to some extent, obviously, and it should be have been covered years ago, years ago. That's why we're in the mess we're in, because the media did not cover it. They didn't. They ignored it. Oh, you know, what? Republicans have their problems. Democrats have their problems. They're both the same. No, no, they're not. The media ignored it. The Republican Party establishment itself ignored it. They, actually, they did worse than ignore it. 
They echoed it. They allowed this to happen. In any event, with all of that, with all of the fear of terrorism, ISIS, blah, 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 it's easy to lose focus on uh, on the stuff that's going on below the that media noise that is likely to have a very real generational effect on our system of governance and, uh, in the case we're going to talk uh, shortly about with Ari Berman, the right to vote itself. Incredibly, after decades of what most people thought was settled law in this country, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a challenge this week to the long-held principle of one person, one vote. I didn't even know that was up for debate anymore. Apparently it is. Ari Berman, author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights, he will be here shortly to explain this case that somehow, somehow got to the high court Um and and how this uh, struggle, this uh, struggle to uh, to vote still continues, still goes on after all of these years, even as the Supreme Court now might go even further than it has already gone in cutting the knees out from under minority voting rights in this country. Anyway, we'll talk about that whole case coming up. It's I, I'm uh, again surprised we even have to talk about that in 2015, but apparently we do, and we're going to continue talking about it for a long time to come if we don't get distracted by those shiny objects. Also, coming up later, speaking of shiny objects and not getting distracted, is uh, Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report. Hey, Desi Doyen. Hey. <laughs> uh, as the uh, landmark UN climate conference in Paris winds down towards its thrilling conclusion, and it really is, it really could be thrilling, Desi. Oh, it's going to be a nail-biter. Uh, yeah, no, it, the reports are now suggesting that the 195 countries or so that are participating in this conference, uh, they've been pulling overnighters right oh, now, yeah. uh, but they may walk away with an agreement that is far far better, better than many thought was even possible at this point. Who'd have thunk it? Well, wait and see. You're dubious still? I'm, I, you, you know, still? I, these usually go into the all-night hours. Uh, yeah. They usually go, they're supposed to end on Saturday. They usually go to late on Sunday. Uh, this is, of course, a yeah. massive agreement. It's the fate of the world. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but historically, at this point in the conference, this is the 21st year uh, this group has met. Historically, at this point in the conference, everything has broke down. This is it's true. It's a complete disaster. This is true. A couple of years ago, and what was it, in Copenhagen, when uh, President Obama was flying out to try and save the day or something like yeah, that? Yeah, this is. Uh, completely 180 from that. Yeah, things are going Thank really God. well. Yeah. So while all of that is going on uh, in Paris, back here in this country, our insane Congress, in this case led by Republican presidential hopeful Ted Cruz, uh, they held a hearing on climate science this week, sort of on climate science, in which Rush Limbaugh's guest host, Rush Limbaugh's guest host, was called to testify as an expert at this uh, hearing held by Ted Cruz. What is he, the chair of the science... Of the Senate Science Committee. <laughs> and the he's... ultimate science denier yeah. in charge of Senate science appropriations. Yeah, that's great. So uh, Limbaugh's guest host uh, ended up offering some rambling nonsense about ISIS as part of his uh, response. Uh, so we will have all of that and more ahead on today's thrilling broadcast. Uh, but speaking of ISIS and uh, of important stories disappearing amongst all the madness of late, a story just developing over the past hour or so in Arkansas. We now have an update on it, but let me start at the, uh, at the beginning here. After tweeting Thursday afternoon that authorities were responding to an active shooter report 
at Arkansas State University's uh, student union, the uh, the armed individual was surrounded by police before any shots were fired. So that was the good news when this story broke. The Jonesboro Sun, the local newspaper down there in uh, in Arkansas, uh, tweeted information from the police chief that the armed man was quote armed with a shotgun and quote had two propane tanks ready to blow. So uh, here we go again. The university issued an alert asking folks on the campus to shelter in place. A negotiator and tactical teams were being sent out, according to AP. Arkansas State University is located in Jonesboro, Arkansas, 130 miles northeast of Little Rock. It's the flagship campus of the state's university system. Approximately 14,000 students are enrolled there. Local media outlet WMC reported, uh, quoted a student on the scene in this case, somebody, I think a woman named Dakota Galbin, saying, well, I thought for sure this type of stuff wouldn't happen in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Really? Yeah. Well, well, yes, of course. Uh, not here, not here in the deep south, not in Arkansas. We Where have we're washed with guns. That's right. This couldn't possibly happen here. Well, uh yeah, it, it, it did happen. It is happening. And, uh, well, I guess I should say that it looks like the right-wingers uh, were right. That uh, Terrorism. ISIS. ISIS is coming, coming to get us all, even coming to get us in Arkansas, in the Deep South. They were right. We have to be very afraid. We have to be very afraid of everything uh, that concerns, uh, what do they like to say, radical Islamic terrorism. Oh, but wait. Wait, there's this little piece of information that also came into this uh, with this story. And this, of course, is why this story will most likely disappear entirely before the day is even done, frankly. Officials say that the incident on the campus at Arkansas, Arkansas State University began when the suspect crashed his pickup truck on the campus lawn and stepped out of the truck armed with a shotgun and a gas can. His vehicle is adorned with an American flag as well as a Gadsden flag. That's the yellow don't tread on me flag, the symbol for many of the right wing tea parties around this country. So, yeah, once again, this appears to be a case of domestic right wing terrorism. Like most cases of terrorism in this country. And, uh... And still, according to uh, most of most police in this country who fear right wing uh, domestic terrorism, even more uh, as much or uh, more than Islamic terrorism. Uh, that's also uh, a case that it is a real threat, according to actual hard data, according to the actual numbers. Far, far more people, far more Americans in this country are killed by domestic extremist terrorism like this than they are uh, from ISIS terrorism. So that remains a far, far greater threat exponentially than terrorists from ISIS and Al-Qaeda, at least to Americans. Now, as of now, as we go to air, just before airtime, the man has been taken into custody, thankfully. Alive? Alive. There ah. are no injuries. Yes. He must be white. Yes. As a matter of fact, I think he is. Oh, well, I, I actually, I don't know. Okay, we'll I confirm that. I can't confirm that, yeah, at this, at this moment. Although with an American flag and a, and a Tea Party a Don't Tread on Me flag, uh, you can uh, draw your own conclusions for the moment. 
Uh, but, you know, uh, this is just going to be one of those stories that uh, dollars to donuts disappears. Just like the, the bomb placed at the Martin Luther King parade a few years ago. Remember that? Nobody even talks about that. A bomb was placed at a Martin Luther King parade. Luckily, it didn't go off. This was up, I think, in Washington State, as I recall. Uh, so just like that story and just like really the Planned Parenthood story that took place just three days before the uh, Santa Barbara shooting. Santa, San Bernardino. I keep saying that. The San Bernardino shooting. Although there was a Santa Barbara shooting. Remember, that was just a year or two ago. It's hard to keep track it these is, days. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, just like uh, those stories, much of this is likely to disappear. I mean, that guy in the Planned Parenthood shooting, he came into court is that yesterday, just yesterday, talking about protecting the babies. We must be protecting the babies. He was quoted the day of talking about no more baby parts. Exactly what Fox News has been talking about. The terrorist enablers at this point over at Fox News. Exactly what they've been talking about. Oh, the, the baby parts from that uh, phony uh, uh, Planned Parenthood video. So that's what that guy was talking about in uh Colorado Springs, that was a case of right-wing terrorism. We've got another case of right-wing terrorism, or at least attempted right-wing terrorism today, apparently, on the University of Arkansas. I don't know, maybe it could be ISIS. Maybe they thought this was a great way to trick people, buy a pickup truck, put an American flag on it, a Gadsden flag on it. No one will notice us down here in Arkansas. Maybe that was the case. Maybe that will turn out to be the case. I find it unlikely. Instead, I find it more likely that the story is is going to disappear entirely as it does, and we're all going to spend billions and billions of dollars more to uh, go bomb foreign nations and pretend that Syrian refugees are coming here to kill us all. So I thought it was worth noting on this show today. Noted. Again, happily, nobody was hurt at this time. Uh, but once again, our country is at threat from extremism, but it's not Islamic extremism that poses the greatest and most immediate threat. As we like to say here on the broadcast, the call is still coming from inside the house. Not that right wing opportunists, fascists and fear mongers give a damn or that they'll even let you know about it, but we will. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Ari Berman as one person, one vote is on trial. Really? Yeah, really. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. I fought the law, I'm a law one I fought 
Bible the law win this time. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Donald Trump's right-wing race-baiting doppelganger on the U.S. Supreme Court, that would be Justice Antonin Scalia, did some weapons-grade trolling of his own during oral arguments at the high court yesterday with uh, some racialist comments that are... As usual, succeeding in sucking up much of the news cycle oxygen today in uh, in the oral arguments Wednesday for a Supreme Court affirmative action case, as Tierney Sneed writes over at TPM, Justice Antonin Scalia, well-known critic of affirmative action, suggested that the policy was hurting minority students by sending them to schools too academically challenging for them. Scalia said that there were people who who would contend that, quote, it does not benefit African-Americans to to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, as opposed to having them go to a less advanced school, a less a slower track school where they do well, unquote. Yes, that's exactly what he said. He went on to argue that, quote, most of the black scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. They come from lesser schools where they do not feel that they're that they're being pu- uh, that they're being pushed ahead in classes that are that are too fast for them, said Scalia. The case Fisher v. University of Texas, Austin. Des, that's your old stomping ground, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. All right. Uh, Fisher v. University of Texas, Austin is being brought by a white woman who was not accepted by the university and who says it's. Its policy to use race as a factor in a pool of the students it accepts is unconstitutional. A decision in that case, Fisher v. University of Texas, is expected by the end of the Supreme Court's term next summer. Understandably, I suppose, those comments from Scalia, as noted, are sucking up a lot of the U.S. uh, Supreme Court news oxygen, at the very least today. That is, uh, after all, the same Justice Scalia, who during oral arguments back in 2013 declared that the landmark 50-year-old Voting Rights Act was little more than a, quote, racial entitlement for minorities. Shortly thereafter, the Supremes gutted that landmark Voting Rights Act. But the, uh, the noise about Scalia's remarks seems to be doing a fine job in somewhat obscuring another case which had oral arguments the day before on Tuesday, which, if the so-called conservative majority on the court decides in favor of plaintiffs, could have at least as great, if not greater, of an effect on our nation, on minority rights, on voting rights, and frankly, on a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. As usual... Try not to be distracted by the shiny racist objects that keep getting floated in front of your face. On Tuesday, uh, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Evanwell v. Abbott, a case out of the state of Texas as well that challenges, some might say incredibly enough, the long-held American idea of one person, one vote. That long-held principle describes how congressional and legislative districts are currently drawn up to represent a largely equal number of people in each district. But one person, one vote, amazingly, is now on trial in the U.S. Supreme Court as right-wing challengers to the idea think it shouldn't be one person, one vote, but rather one voter, one vote. In other words... 
Legislative districts ought to be redrawn to represent the number of eligible voters in that district rather than the number of people who actually live there. That would be a sea change, and that sea change uh, would be in the way that most states draw up legislative districts. It would result in essentially no more representation for children under the voting age of 18, permanent non-citizen residents, felons, former felons who have had their voting rights taken away from them, and many others. In a statement on the Evanwell case released this week by Hillary Clinton, the, uh, the Democratic presidential candidate declared, quote, such measures are an insult to the millions of Americans who have fought throughout our history for our country to achieve equality and justice for all people. She called on the court to, quote, protect political equality and turn away this harmful and reckless attempt to write off so many. Opponents of the challenge argue that a decision in favor of the Evanwell plaintiffs would result in a devastating blow to minority voting rights and to uh, Democrats, the Democratic Party, along with that. Additionally, an analysis from NYU's Brennan Center for Justice describes that if Evanwell plaintiffs win and if the rules are changed so that congressional and statehouse districts, uh, district lines must be redrawn based on citizen voting age population instead of total population, Brennan Center says, quote, every state legislative map in the country would become presumptively unconstitutional under equal protection principles and would need to be redrawn. In other words, if they decide in favor of the plaintiffs here, we could have absolute chaos in our electoral system as if we don't already have it. Zounds. Really? Yes, really. Here they go again. Here to talk about all of this, and I can think of uh, a no more perfect person to discuss it, is our old friend Ari Berman. He's contributing writer for The Nation magazine. His new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, was cited by The New York Times as one of the best books of the year. It was released just a couple of months ago, and it is an exhaustively researched, and as I noted last time we had you on, Ari, a, a heart-wrenching documentation of the uniquely American and harrowing tale of the fight to vote in this country and the outrageously long and continuing effort to block it. That fight continues incredibly enough today, this week, even as the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Evanwell v. Abbott. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast, Ari. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, first, uh, congrats on all the fantastic reviews that your new book, Give Us the Ballot, uh, has been getting just all over the place, man. It's really thank cool. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and I'll add, makes a great Christmas gift. All right, with that in mind. Absolutely. Okay, well, what is the current... The more copies, the better. Yes, yes, please. Well, actually, the more copies, the better, so that people understand what's going on in this country. Uh, exactly. For, you know, well over 50 years, but still going on today. And that's actually why I love the book, because it ties that battle to the continuing fight going on today. So speaking of today, what is the current status quo for how these legislative maps are drawn in, in most states? How long has that been the status quo in the U.S.? And if you can explain the math to me. How would a decision in favor of uh, the right-wing Evanwell plaintiffs here end up hurting minority voting rights? So basically, the situation before the one-person, one-vote cases of the 1960s was that districts were varied wildly 
in terms of how many people were in them. That mm-hmm. you had districts in California, for example, where you had one state senator representing 6 million people and another state senator representing 14,000 people. Uh, and what the Supreme Court said in a series of cases in the 1960s was that districts had to be roughly equal in population. Then the next question was, well, how do you determine population? And the most obvious answer was population means total population, everyone who lives in that district. Because, of course, uh, representatives are supposed to represent everybody in their area, but that's mm-hmm. also just the easiest way to do it as well. Uh, and now the plaintiffs in Evanwell are saying that you should base these districts not on total population, but on eligible or registered voters. If that happens, many people who are now counted will be excluded because they are not eligible voters, such as those that are under 18, uh, people that are uh, not, US, not U.S. citizens, both documented and undocumented, uh, prisoners, for example, who have lost the right to vote. Uh, and so all of those people will not be counted. If you look at the, the math itself, mm-hmm. this came from a brief by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. That will mean that 55% of Latinos, 45% of Asian Americans, and 30% of African Americans will not be counted towards representation. And that's why this case is such an attack on minority voting representation. So, in other words, now states originally, until these decisions in the the one-person, one-vote decisions in uh, in the 60s and since then, until today, uh, states themselves had the right to draw up their own map legislative map how they saw fit right so you you talked about Ari the uh, the disparity in the number of people in each district would they purposely draw those districts in order to say take all the black people or all the hispanics and put them into a sing- one single district and then divide up all of the other districts uh, for everyone else is yeah, that what that, they were that doing was par- that was partly that was partly what they were doing although remember before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, many of these groups were disenfranchised, so they couldn't vote uh, in, in the mm. first place. Right. But, but what was happening is this was a way that uh, more rural areas had a disproportionate amount of political power. In Alabama, for example, the uh, 600,000 residents of Birmingham had the same level of representation in the Alabama legislature as the 15,000 residents of Lowndes County, Alabama, next to Selma, where not a single African American was registered to vote. So all across the country, rural areas had a disproportionate amount of political power, and that's because legislatures were able to apportion based on a whole number of factors that didn't result in total population. And so the, the one-person, one-vote cases not only made America more democratic, uh, but it made America more reflective of where people lived. Uh, and and if we were to go backwards mm-hmm. to move to a different standard, it would mean that districts would become uh, older, whiter, more rural, and more conservative at the very moment that America itself is becoming younger, more diverse, more urban, and more progressive. And, of course, it, it seems to me that's why this case was brought in the first place. And I want to talk a little bit about the plaintiffs in a second. But my understanding, un- until this case came up, my understanding about one person, one vote was is that it was long settled law. In fact, the only time that I ever heard anybody uh, sort of talk about it uh, these days was actually right wingers, you know, who were claiming the Democrats were somehow stuffing the ballot box and they would shout, you know, one person, one vote uh, in order to claim that there's, you know, massive voter fraud going on that requires restrictions on voting, like uh, strict photo ID requirements. So how did this case seemingly come out of nowhere? I mean, lost in the lower courts. How did this case even get to uh, the Supreme Court, Ari? 
Well, I think the easiest answer is that it's brought by the same people that challenged the Voting Rights Act, the same people that challenged affirmative action, uh, and, and seemingly everything that they bring, particularly this one guy, Ed Bloom, and his Project Unfair Representation, everything he brings seems to be heard by this Supreme Court. And so it's literally like he's sitting around thinking, what's the next way I can try to attack voting rights? What's the next way I can try to attack racial equality? Uh, and they keep thinking of, uh, of more and and, and, and more creative schemes, and it's just like they're going through everything mm-hmm. that was done in the 1960s and challenging it, whether it's the Voting Rights Act or it's the Fair Housing Act or it's one person, one vote. All of these landmark achievements that have been so successful are now under attack, and this is just the next iteration of this. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I did not see this case coming. Right. Uh, I did not think the court would even hear this case. Uh, and even if the plaintiffs lose, the very fact that we're discussing this is disturbing because this has been settled law for such a long time. And, and this, you, you cited Edward Bloom. He's uh, the guy who orchestrated all of this, of the uh, Project on Fair Representation. And when you say, Ari, that he, it's, it's like he's literally looking for things to, uh, to bring forward to challenge the voting rights in this country, you don't mean figuratively here. You mean literally. I mean, he really does seem to be well, going through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is literally all he does. Uh, and the difference between him and, and someone like, for example, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund mm-hmm. is that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund are defending the most vulnerable people in our society uh, from many, many attacks, whether uh, defending uh, people's voting rights or defending people against discrimination in housing or employment or from the police. This is a situation where they are basically going out uh, and filing cases on behalf of aggrieved conservative white people um, and then trying to take away rights from everybody else. But the, but the thing is that taking, these, these plaintiffs aren't even really aggrieved. They have to sort of go out and find people and explain the case to them and, and sort of tell them why, why they're aggrieved as opposed to the NAACP well, yeah, cases yeah. You, you cite where people well, I mean, actually the lose their rights. It's an absurd argument, the, the idea that somehow because they live in a district with more citizens or more people who are older 18, uh, that, that somehow their, right, their vote counts for less, their representation counts for less, is, is a totally absurd argument that, I, that, quite frankly, I mean, I can't even believe the court is entertaining it. Uh, I know, and that's why this is amazing to me. Did, 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 was that apparent as you were uh, in the hearings? Do, do the plaintiff, I'm sorry, do the uh, justices understand why this is there, that this is nothing more than a, 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 you know, trying to gain political advantage, or at least was there evidence of that uh, heard from the justices uh, as you heard the, 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 hear- the arguments? Well, I should I should. Uh say that I was not in the court, actually. Oh, okay. I was stuck in New York. I thought okay. I was going to be, but I was stuck in New York. Right. Um, but I read the transcript afterwards, mm-hmm. which in this case, I think, was just as good as being there, because it was a very, very dense um, oral argument. Um, and basically, uh, it, it seemed like a number of justices were not that engaged at all with the topic to begin with. Scalia actually didn't say anything, which almost never happens. He suddenly hmm. turned into Clarence Thomas. Wow. Uh, and, I mean, we, we, we had Justice Kennedy trying to strike some sort of middle ground, uh, basically saying, well, is there some way that we can count voters but not exclude uh, all these other people? And, um, and then you had basically the liberal justices saying, well, uh, representation means representation. You represent everybody where you live. And then John Roberts said, well, it's called one person, one vote. Doesn't that mean that it applies to voters? Um, without realizing As opposed that's to not persons. Really what it was about. 
about. Yeah, that's not really what it was about. Um, that's not really what it was about. It was about the fact that when this was happening in the 1960s, everyone would be roughly equal in terms of population. That's mm-hmm. why it was called one person, one vote, not because they believed that population just meant voters. But perhaps that subtlety was lost in the Chief Justice. Uh, so, that, I mean, just just on its face, if the uh, plaintiffs prevail here, uh, this would mean, for example, that if you're a child, if you have a lot of children in a district, uh, those people mean absolutely nothing. They have absolutely no weight uh, in our political system the way this would be drawn right i'm understanding that correctly yeah i mean they, they said that they, they obviously they already don't have a right to vote uh, and then right. they wouldn't have uh, they then they wouldn't be counted and so it's like they're they would be invisible even if in the case of uh, children they are they are you know their parents are, are mm-hmm. citizens and paying taxes or if you're like a documented immigrant and you're here and you're you're working and you're contributing to society or you're an undocumented immigrant and you're working and you're contributing to society or you're a disenfranchised ex-felon who nonetheless is contributing to society you don't count and i mean that that's just such a slippery slope for representation that means that for example uh, elected officials are not going to be responsive to these communities needs even though these communities have uh, real needs and i think it would challenge this whole notion of what elected officials are supposed to do uh, and what the government is supposed to do uh, the city of Los Angeles filed a very interesting brief in the case, along with many other cities, basically saying that when the police are investigating a crime, they don't ask for a voter registration card. And when a firefighter is trying to mm-hmm. fight a blaze, they don't check whether someone can vote or not. Right. Um, but suddenly, these are now criteria for representation, and I, I just think uh, that would be a major retreat from these principles of equality that we've already agreed on. This just seems so amazing to me, Ari. The uh, Do we even have, and I don't know if uh, this came up or not in the hearing, but uh, do we even have a way to count the number of Voters, and I guess it would be uh, eligible voters, registered voters. Uh, currently, we use the U.S. Census to determine the number of people in uh, each district to help us draw these maps. Do we have a way to, does the U.S. Census even track that number of eligible voters? They, they do, but not nearly as accurately. So the, the, the total population that they do uh, once every 10 years is far and away the most accurate. And they do a smaller survey. Mm-hmm that me- measures um, current voting age population. But that is not nearly as large of a survey. It's not nearly as accurate. Uh, so it can be used in certain cases. It can be used in very specific voting rights cases, for example. We really need to drill down on the data. But in terms of uh, drawing districts for every office, uh, the census doesn't have the data to do this. So I mean, on a practical level, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then you're, uh, then you're of course, talking about, on a broader level, uh, diminishing representation for a lot of different people, and then particularly diminishing representation for those groups that have been most impacted by the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So, so I mean, I, I see this case as sort of the next attack on voting rights in that you know, the same people that have been most impacted uh, by all these new voting restrictions, by the overturning of the key part of the Voting Rights Act, they are now the ones who would be excluded from representation if one person, one vote was undercut. Do you uh, concur, or at least is there any evidence uh, that the justices understood that, in fact, if they decide in favor of uh, Evan Well here, that every, as uh, Brendan Center points out, every state legislative map in the country would become presumptively unconstitutional, need to be withdrawn? Does that even matter? Did they did they recognize that I as think, a concern? I think Justice Kennedy in particular was was wrestling with that, which basically saying that there's all these principles you're supposed to cover when you talk about redistricting, mm-hmm. um, compactness, communities of interest, all of these other things. And if suddenly you're 
going around trying to just figure out where all the eligible or registered voters are, you would have to disregard a lot of those principles. Uh, and it, it would just it would mean that so many districts would have to be re- redrawn. It would mean that so many more cases would come before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been unwilling to try to get involved in redistricting on multiple occasions, mm-hmm. and now they're going to get involved in the drawing of every single district in the country. So I just, I just uh, find, I just find it hard to believe uh, that Kennedy is going to go for that. I think uh, if there's any modification to one person, one vote, it would seem to me, based on the oral argument, that it would be a relatively modest one. Um, perhaps only dealing with the most extreme examples, districts where there's a very, very, very high number of ineligible voters, um, but only those districts. But, but I, again, I, it's so hard to predict what the court's going to do. I mean, there are certain cases in which you come out of the oral argument, like the Voting Rights Act case in 2013, where you just knew the court's going to overturn this. Mm-hmm. With this case, it wasn't nearly as clear. Well, I'll, t- I'll take that as good news, I suppose, uh, at, at least that. Well, I mean, because there was real concern after Shelby. Everybody uh, I've sensed is sort of scratching their head, looking at this and saying, how is this even before the case? And, and by the way, Ari Berman, is there any uh, much has been made of the uh, the plaintiffs in this case, the people that were signed on, uh, that they're kind of crazy. The two named plaintiffs that yeah. Bloom found, yeah. uh, one of them, I think, uh, suggests that Obama is a propagandist for the Communist Party. The other one believes in, literally believes in unicorns, as I understand it. Does any of that actually matter in this in this case? Uh, or is that just, hey, no, they find, don't, find who they find and it doesn't matter on the, on the no, justices? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, the plaintiffs aren't arguing the case before the court. They're mm-hmm. not really... Um, described in any great detail in the brief. I mean, it just does just go to show the absurdity uh, of this case and show that it really is just another partisan attack. Um, it's an attack by Republicans on Democrats, and it's an attack um, by conservatives uh, on the diverse electorate of this country and the diverse population of this country. And I think uh, the court should see this for what it is. Um, it's not a good faith challenge. Um, it's something that's been concocted to try to further reduce representation from people. Uh, I think at least four justices on the court uh, gave this case a lot more credibility than it deserved. Uh, and do you think that we're, I, I know you can't read the tea leaves, but, and aside from uh, Scalia's uncharacteristic silence. Are we most likely looking at a no, uh, another five to four case here with Kennedy being the swing vote in the end? It seems. It seems. It seems like that's where it's headed. Yes. Last question before I let you go, Ari Berman. As you see it, does this case? Uh, and you spoke to this a little bit, but I want to give you the opportunity to do it again. Uh, does this case work into the same storyline? that you expertly documented in uh, in your new book, Give Us the Ballot. Is this part of that same war, the modern struggle for voting rights in America, as you describe it? Is this just a new front, or are, are we looking at a new war entirely at this point, as new avenues are invented to restrict the right to vote? Or is this of a piece with what we've seen for the last 50 years or longer? Well, what I've, what I've noticed is that there has been a 50-year attempt uh, to try to restrict voting rights. And one of the things uh, that, that I noticed is that uh, there's always just new ways thought up to try to roll voting rights back. Uh, and we've seen a dramatic escalation, I think, uh, of a very old strategy. And, and this guy in particular, uh, Ed Bloom, has been driving a lot of it because he has been going out and he's been finding cases to bring before the Supreme Court, which has dramatically accelerated the attacks on voting rights in this country. I mean, so the, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act was, for him, 
an enormous, enormous victory, an enormous victory for the counter-revolution that has been trying to roll back the Voting Rights Act for 50 years. Now they're figuring out what more can we do? What's the next way that we can challenge these things? And so now they're going at one person, uh, one vote. And they don't seem likely to stop anytime soon. It's not like you overturn one law and then you're like, oh, I'm done, I've accomplished it. There's, they're always going to find another thing to attack. Uh, we saw that the Fair Housing Act was just challenged. And there's always affirmative actions being challenged. There's always something new that they can attack. Uh, and so um, I don't want to say it's a new strategy because it's been going on for 50 years, but I do think that it, it's an, definitely an escalation of an old strategy. And it's uh, you're right. The, 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 the fight continues. Ari Berman, a contributing writer for The Nation magazine. His new book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. And it is a landmark, I would say, a landmark documentation of that modern struggle. Ari Berman, uh, great to talk to you. Hope you sell a lot of them for Christmas. You deserve it. Uh, and Hanukkah, I should say. Uh, and always great talking to you, Ari. Hope to do it again soon. Thanks a lot, Brad. I appreciate it. Thank Good you, to talk brother. to you. You too. All right, a quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and the latest out of Paris. Once again, speaking of uh, stories that are disappearing beneath the uh, noise of everything that is going on in our media, trying to keep our eyes on stuff that matters right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, melting for Desi Doyen and our Green <laughs> News Report. Hey, Des. Hey. Um, well, we have actually a number of updates. Uh, even since things are moving so quickly in Paris at the UN conference right now, as uh, as we barrel towards what is the con- Friday, uh, Friday well, or Saturday? We don't know when it's basically end. the conference officially ends okay. Saturday, but they typically go overtime. Okay, well we'll see if they make it this time because the goal is obviously a uh, a treaty that will well just save the world. That's all. But That's all. It, as uh, 195 uh, countries are gathered out there, so a lot happening. Things have. Been moving quickly in Paris, even since we uh, put down our latest Green News report earlier today. So let's get right to that. We'll come back with a couple of updates thereafter. So let's do it. Our latest Green News report. We will not sign off on any agreement that represents a certain extinction of our people. UN climate talks stall on temperature target. There is a civil or criminal violation that arises from what they did, then it should be pursued. Hillary Clinton calls for prosecuting ExxonMobil. Climate denier academics caught soliciting payments from fossil fuel interests. Plus, I've never heard anything quite so ridiculous. Rush Limbaugh's guest host given U.S. Senate platform to deny climate change. Dittos, all of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Some insist time to avoid catastrophe is running out. Others are really stupid. Not to put too fine a point on it. This is your Green News Report. Ridiculously earth-shatteringly stupid. I'm gonna soak up the sun. 
Okay, Desi Doyen, 195 countries, 21 years in the making, just hours left. Will all of these nations be able to come together to come up with one single global treaty to keep the earth from becoming unlivable? I'm pretty sure they'll come up with a treaty. The question is, will it be a good one? They are pulling overnighters as we go to air at the United Nations Climate Talks in Paris. Officials are negotiating that comprehensive agreement for all nations to cut global greenhouse gas emissions. A major conflict, island nation states and low-lying developing nations are calling for the official target of global temperatures to rise no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. That's a goal much harder to meet than the current target of two degrees Celsius. That's because, as UN consultant Dr. Hugh Seeley of the island nation of Grenada said on the broadcast this week, these nations will disappear under rapidly rising seas. Climate change is is an existential threat. This is not something that's an economic issue for us. This is an existential issue for us. So our, our, our backs are literally against the wall. On, on, on this one, and therefore we will fight for our existence. We will fight for 1.5 to be anchored in the, in the agreement. The deadline for the talks is Friday. The conference could very well go into overtime. We'll have the thrilling conclusion of the fate <laughs> of our world in our next episode. Here in the U.S., oil giant ExxonMobil is in damage control over revelations that it misled investors and the public on the science of climate change. And now in a video posted by climate activist group 350.org, Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton at a town hall style campaign event this week said she supports prosecution of Exxon. I want us to be uh, looking at what ExxonMobil told their shareholders, told the public. And so, yeah, if there is a civil or criminal violation that arises from what they did, then it should be pursued. Exxon's own scientists, as early as 1977, understood what was going on with the increase of carbon in the atmosphere. They understood that the results, if we kept burning this uh, carbon into the atmosphere, would be, quote, catastrophic. They said it over and over again. And then Exxon spent millions to obscure that science. They need to be held accountable as any other public company would be held accountable for lying to the public and to shareholders. So, no, I'm not unhappy at all that the heat is on ExxonMobil. Hold them accountable just the way Big Tobacco was held accountable for lying to the public. Meanwhile, two prominent U.S. professors have been caught soliciting payment from fossil fuel interests in exchange for casting doubt on climate change. Wait, can we do that? I We could, but I wouldn't want to. Oh, I could use the money. Well, anyway, undercover Greenpeace activists posed as fossil fuel industry consultants seeking academic papers claiming that rising CO2 levels are good for the planet. Two American academics offered to write those reports in exchange for payments of as much as $15,000. The investigation exposes how the fossil fuel industry can easily insert bought and paid for climate change denial into the public domain without the public knowing the true source of the funding. Nice work if you can get it. Finally, Republican Senator and presidential candidate Ted Cruz is apparently running out of actual climate scientists to deny climate change. So at his Senate Science Committee hearing on Tuesday, Cruz called on right-wing pundit Mark Stein to testify against the national security threat posed by climate change. 
climate change. We are planning now for secure, global security threats a century hence because uh, the, the Maldives might have been swept away by water by then. The entire population of the Maldives are all sunny Muslim, uh, so they'll fit in uh, uh, perfectly uh, fine if they all move to this Brussels suburb that produced the uh, shooters in Paris. What the hell is he talking about? That's a good question. And that was a hearing on climate science? In the Senate. Well, I guess they couldn't get Rush Limbaugh himself. They had to get his guest host, Mark Stein. What a world. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Nice work if you can get it. And if you get it, won't you tell me how? Yeah, should I just put out the word that I'm willing to write a paper that says uh, everything will be fine, that the more fossil fuels we burn, uh, the, better. the better? Can I get I, some money for that? It looks like you would get yeah. some money for that. I hate giving deniers airtime, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's just so egregious that it has to be pointed at and mocked. That uh, Speaking of mocking, I f- so I was finally able to figure out, Mark Stein, I had to listen to it, I don't know how many times over and over, his testimony uh, Rush Limbaugh's guest host, Mark Stein, this right winger, regular on Fox News, uh, to figure out what the hell he was talking about with the Maldives. I know. And uh, sh- well, so what that has to do with is basically what he's saying is, well, so what? If the Maldives disappear, there are the many ocean. of them. Right. Uh, if it goes away, who cares? It's very few people and they could just move somewhere. And besides, they're all Sunni Muslims anyway. So what the hell? We don't care about them. Right. That's what he's saying. Yeah. That's what passes as policy suggestions from the right-wingers. From Ted Cruz's uh, climate science conference in the uh, hearing in the U.S. Senate. Just unbelievable. Uh, we didn't have time for this, uh, Des, but we got a minute or two left. We didn't have time for this in our Green News report, but pretty big news, I think, that the U.S. has now committed to doubling its climate adaptation aid right. uh, in this agreement to nearly— 900 million. So the U.S. announced plans on Wednesday to double grant funding it provides to help developing countries adapt to climate change to about $860 million a year, according to Reuters, a pledge that may help clinch a, a global climate pact this week. I heard that number, $860 million a year. That's doubled what we had committed to previously. Right. Isn't that what we spend in about an hour or two in all our various wars going on around the country at this point? Yeah, that would be a good comparison. Uh, And it does seem rather paltry considering that, you know, the United States historically is one of the countries most responsible for the climate change mess that we are in. Most responsible and uh, enjoying most of the... Uh, the the benefits of it, the benefits of burning fossil fuel without penalty, just oh, yeah. putting as much carbon in the air as we want. It's made us rich. And uh, well, so we've it, it was sort of it's big news that we have doubled how much we're going to give. But then when you look at those numbers, it's like, man, we spend more on that in a, you know, in, an, in a day or two on our military. It's just it's amazing. John Kerry, secretary of state who's in Paris working on the final negotiations, uh, said when he announced that he was doubling uh, what we are going to give to these, I guess, to the poor nations for mitigation and so forth. Right. um, We're going to do our part. We will not leave the most vulnerable nations among us to weather the storm alone. So we are going to do our part by giving uh, 900 million there. 
and then spending billions of dollars to destroy the rest of the world everywhere else. Well, you know, bombing your way through peace and all that. Yeah, but yeah. um and, and you know, don't don't imagine that it is lost on the developing nations, especially the poorest developing nations, that uh, the rich countries are not putting out that much mm-hmm. to make up for the fact that they're damaging and have damaged the client the, the climate historically and that the poorest countries, which will be hurt first and worst by climate change, had really nothing to do with creating the problem in the first place. Yeah, this is something we talked about. With with, uh, Dr. Hugh Seely, who's working with the uh, of Grenada, who's working with the small island nations days ago, which is, by the way, a story that AP is just picking up today. So we were ahead of the curve on this one when uh, uh, Dr. Hugh Seely said, uh, "No, we we're not going to go to two degrees. We need to go no higher than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times, as far as how much uh, we allow the temperature." the global temperatures to rise, he said, 1.5 to stay alive. And surprisingly, that's now becoming becoming a thing. It looks like it might get into the treaty, 1.5 as the uh, as the goal. Uh, the latest update is that it is now in the agreement. It is part of the official text. It is not the new target. Two degrees Celsius is, is the official target still. However, just including 1.5 degrees Celsius, they're going to, quote, pursue efforts to limit to 1.5 degrees. Including that in the text at all is, is a big deal. It's a big deal. This has changed uh, a lot from when this conference began two weeks ago and when, when the conversation was oh can we can we even agree to two degrees uh and by the way if we agree to two degrees can we make two degrees and if we make two degrees is that enough to keep us safe and keep the the planet livable well these island nations are saying no it's got to be 1.5 degrees celsius or we're in trouble ap says that uh, while most countries think of climate change in terms of economic costs pacific atolls and Remote island groups in the Indian Ocean and Caribbean uh, picture a world map without them on it at all. Yes. That was something that uh, Seeley said on this show as well. This is not an economic issue for them. This is an issue of survival. Um, AP notes, as Carl Ritter for AP, one of the most important demands of the small islands is to get the world to cut greenhouse gas emissions enough to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. That's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit a threshold many see as critical for their survival. This puts them at odds with Saudi Arabia, a major oil producer, and India, which is worried about being pressed to make emissions cuts that would stifle its economic growth. Des, we've talked about uh, Russia, France, obviously the U.S., these small island nations and their stake in all of this in this Paris uh, climate conference. Haven't gotten to talk much about India, and they're a big player here. Yes, yes, they are. Um, India is in a very different position from even China as another powerhouse developing economy. India has, you know, uh, uh, many more people, hundreds mm-hmm. of millions of people who don't even have access to uh, reliable electricity right now, aren't even connected to the grid. They have very deep poverty, and they are trying to lift all of those people out of poverty. And they cur- currently lack uh, enough of the development aid to be able to do so, and to do so without the availability of cheap fossil fuels. That's why India is trying to not have as stringent uh, targets for cutting their emissions um, as they believe that other countries should have. And and it's, you know, it's an understandable point. Uh, the problem with that is, scientifically speaking, every molecule of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere now is going to be part of our debt that we have to deal with at the end of all of this. Uh, at the it, end. Well, yeah, on the other side of this. That we're sounds talking, dark. Well, yeah. that that's essentially what we're talking about. There is going to be this huge amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, and every single bit of it is going to affect human generations for 
thousands of years. So if you put it out now, they'll have to deal with it later. So we have to figure out a path through this uh, with clean energy development for these developing nations. The Indian negotiator Ashok Lavasa told AP that uh, we're not against the target of 1.5 degrees, but the issue is how can such a target be implemented? He added, and why do they talk only about 1.5 degrees? Why not any other target? Uh, so, uh, good questions, uh, but uh, w- would they, by the way, India, be one of the countries that would receive some of this money? Yes. To basically leapfrog over the fossil fuel development period to the renewable uh, energy period. Right, and technology costs money, uh, deployment costs money, and uh, they, they basically would be part of that green climate fund. That would receive this uh, money that we have now committed to double. Yes. How we shake it out of our crazy right-wing Congress is another question for, I guess, another day. Right. Uh, But I just wanted to note the Maldives, an island group in the Indian Ocean, is on average just five feet above sea level at this point. Scientists believe that the seas could rise about three feet by the end of the century. Some say it could rise a lot more, a lot faster. Uh, And already some of the smallest of the 196 inhabited islands of the Maldives are running out of fresh water during the dry season, which keeps getting longer. Climate change also poses an existential threat to the Marshall Islands, which protrude only six feet above sea levels in most places. King tides, when the alignment of the earth, moon, and sun combine to produce the most extreme tidal effects and storm surges are getting worse, causing floods that contaminate fresh water, kill crops, and road lands. But, of course, that's only for the Marshall Islands, and who cares, right, uh, Mark Stein? Kiribati, a Pacific nation of made up of 33 coral atolls, uh, is already making plans for when and if the country becomes I- unlivable. They have bought eight square miles of land in Fiji to move the entire population. When villagers ask the president, President Anote Tong, what uh, what to do about seawater breaking into the land, damaging their water supply, and running their ruining their crops, his answer isn't reassuring. He says, "I tell them you may have to leave your villages because there is nothing we can do to protect you." You know, it's just a big joke. Just a big joke. It's a big hoax being carried out by whoever. Anyway, uh, all right. uh, If you missed any portion of today's program, download our program at bradblog.com in full for free anytime. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. You can drop us email as well. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.